Before we start, a reminder that this podcast refers to child sexual abuse and can be troubling to hear. Our Father. Our Father, who art in heaven. Hallow. Hallow be my name. Thy kingdom. Thy kingdom come. This is my cousin JJ with my Aunt Eileen. Thy will. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He's four years old and getting really good at his prayers. And that's how me and my brother and all of my 23 cousins were raised. When I was seven and preparing for my first communion, I would take tortillas, break them into little pieces, and practice receiving the pretend Eucharist. So the fact that I grew up to work in lay Catholic ministry isn't exactly a surprise. I served in the Jesuit Volunteer Corps, taught Sunday school, and then later, Hi, Miss Van Dorn. Hi, Miss Van Dorn. High school theology. I forgot my homework. I'm so excited for senior retreat. I'll see you in ethics class. But what strikes me now is that I barely remember the church's child protection program. I did do background checks and took an online course about creating a safe environment for kids. And when I was teaching, I was always careful to keep the classroom door open when speaking one-on-one with a student. So I wasn't oblivious to the church's reform policies. But I didn't know them by their official name, which is the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People, or what most people call the Dallas Charter. The good news is that the church trained me to keep appropriate and safe boundaries around kids. But when the wave of news reports broke again in the summer of 2018, I was blindsided. Had my church done anything since Spotlight's investigation? Or was I the only one ticking boxes? From America Media, I'm Maggie Van Dorn, and this is Deliver Us, a podcast about the sex abuse crisis in the Catholic Church and where we go from here. On this episode, we're asking, What have the U.S. bishops done in response to the crisis? And what have they failed to do? My name is Frank Keating. I'm the former governor of Oklahoma and was the first national chairman of the sex abuse panel that the National Congress of Catholic Bishops created back in the early 2000s. One of the first things the U.S. bishops did after Spotlight's reporting in 2002 was create a national review board. And to do this, they recruited a team of professionals who each brought a different expertise to the table. Leon Panetta, former Secretary of Defense, for example. Bob Bennett, the super lawyer in Washington, was a member. And a number of others who were really first-rate, including a member of the Illinois Supreme Court. Governor Keating was a natural choice because he was Catholic and also had an impressive background in law enforcement. Because I was an FBI agent, because I was former United States attorney in Oklahoma and supervised nationally all the criminal prosecutions in the U.S., I would bring a law enforcement, factual, no-nonsense prosecution focus to our challenge, which I did, and I think that was the right thing to do. Governor Keating knew that taking on the role of internal church prosecutor wouldn't exactly make him popular. But early on, he had a meeting that would change how he understood his role on the board. The first meeting we had of our board, I was still the governor of Oklahoma at the time, and we met in the governor's mansion, 
And I wanted to have a victim come to every meeting and then tell us basically why he was there. And it would make us know why we were there, namely to make sure this didn't happen again. And I could see that one of my members looked at their watch like, well, we said that we'd give them 20 minutes and, you know, okay, we've heard what we need to hear. I interrupted these two people and I said, well, sir, thank you very much for coming. I want to say on behalf of my board, we feel for you, we just hurt for you, and we sincerely hope your son is fully restored to health. And he looked at me and he turned purple and his lips started to quiver and his wife started to cry. And he said, fully restored to health is is it our son committed suicide. Well, that just radicalized me from that day forward. How did that change you? I felt that anyone who did this, maybe God would forgive them, but I wouldn't and we wouldn't as a human family. Anyone who did this needed to be prosecuted Anyone who did this needed to be removed from the priesthood. The National Review Board got to work, implementing three components of reform. Zero tolerance, criminal referral, and transparency. Well, zero tolerance means we can't stand for this ever again. Criminal referral means if you do it, you go to jail. Transparency means if you settle a case, we need to know about it. So it was really a full-service bank, if you will, what they told us to do. They could not have done more. They were late, obviously, in coming to the altar, if you will. But choosing this board as they did and giving us the task that they did, I think, was the right thing to do. The board also had to find someone who could implement their work in an official capacity. They needed a director. My board wanted to have, as the head of the sex abuse office, a social worker. I wanted a cop. And I won, and we had the highest-ranked woman ever in the FBI. My name is Kathleen McChesney. I was the first director of the Office of Child and Youth Protection for the U.S. Catholic Bishops' Conference. It was Kathleen's job to implement the charter nationwide. To implement the charter, the various aspects of the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People, we engaged individuals from every diocese throughout the country. These were a combination of laity, clerics, women religious, male religious, people who were committed to making the church a much safer place for children and young people. Some of the steps in the charter were and had been taken by various dioceses for nearly a decade in the United States, maybe even longer in some cases. So by and large, dioceses embraced the charter, and some even had a head start. But there was at least one exception. There was at least one diocese where, after the first audit, the bishop indicated that he would no longer be participating in the process. Mm. Was that in Lincoln, Nebraska? Yes, it was in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so what were the consequences there? Well, sadly, there were no consequences. Bishops report only to Rome. They don't report to the bishops' conference. And that rogue bishop in Lincoln, Nebraska, wasn't the only problem. In fact, we would later come to learn that a bishop who was highly influential in creating the Dallas Charter was an abuser himself. But we'll get back to that in a minute. First, let's hear from someone who helped make the Dallas Charter happen at a parish level. Well, each parish had a designated safe environment coordinator, so we would be audited every year and had to sign off that 
we were doing all these things to keep a safe environment. This is Jane Myers. In 2002, she was the director of faith formation across three churches in Clemson, South Carolina. Most of my work has been as director of faith formation, so handling catechesis and sacrament formation and the RCIA. In other words, she helped people who wanted to convert to Catholicism. And she helped children and adults deepen their faith. So when the stories of sexual abuse first surfaced, Jane became a reconciler between Catholics and church leaders. The breaking of this news added a layer to my role of having to reassure people that the clergy are not the only manifestation of the church, that we are the church, the body of Christ is the church. It required, you know, saying that and trying to live that more authentically myself. Jane found that parents were nervous around Catholic milestones, like their child's first confession. When I was preparing families for first reconciliation for their children, I had parents say to me, I'm not sure I want my child to be sitting in a room alone with a priest, even if it's for a sacrament. How can you assure me that my child will be safe even in that very personal setting? Jane ran a training program that the diocese required for any volunteer working with children. It's called Virtues. When a person would come to me offering to volunteer, or if I would recruit someone, which I should add that to my job description. Uh, Everyone in ministry knows that if you're not literally begging for alms, you're begging for volunteers. And with the new rules, Jane had to ask volunteers to take a three-hour Virtues training program and then answer a monthly questionnaire. But Jane said the added paperwork was worth it because it changed the way volunteers thought about their own role in protecting children. The most confronting and actually disturbing part of the training that everyone reported was the actual testimonies, and these were real perpetrators, describing in detail how they would groom children so their grooming techniques. The positive effect was it really raised people's awareness to be much more alert to how adults were behaving around their own personal children, uh, children in our parish, and so on. There were some people who were angry that this was being required of them when this was something that the clergy had caused and perpetrated. It seemed unfair that parents and volunteers were being asked to complete hours of training. Hadn't Spotlight revealed priests as the real danger in a parish? It's not that Catholics opposed safe environment training. They just wanted clergy to be under the same kind of oversight. But what most people didn't realize is that priests were required to take the same trainings. They were just calling it by a different name. Welcome to Virtus. Yeah, there was really little language about the actual Dallas Charter. The local way of describing it in our region, and I imagine in other places too, was this Virtus training. Nobody has the right to touch you in a way that you don't want. So lay Catholics were calling it Virtus, while the bishops were calling it the Dallas Charter. And this brings us back to what I was saying before. When you can't connect your ministry at a local level to what bishops are doing at a national level, 
it's disempowering. And coupled with the shocking stories we read in the Pennsylvania grand jury report, it's disorienting. We're left wondering what progress the church has made since 2002, when really, we've been working on these things ourselves for years. Okay, so what I think we need right now is a recap of what exactly the U.S. bishops have done to make the church safe, accountable, and transparent since 2002. Trust me, it's as much a refresher for me as it is for you. First, the bishops convened in Dallas and wrote the Charter for the Protection of Children and Young People. That charter has four components. Number one, promote healing and reconciliation with survivors. Each diocese designates a victim assistance coordinator and gives support to victims through counseling. Also, a diocese will no longer hide settlements unless a victim has requested it to protect their identity. Number two, guarantee an effective response to allegations. This means that if there is an allegation of abuse, it is immediately brought to both law enforcement and the diocese's own lay review board. If the priest is found credibly accused, he is permanently removed from ministry. Number three, ensure the accountability of our procedures. To do this, the U.S. Church has employed an external auditing firm to make sure that all the dioceses are in compliance. Number four, protect the faithful in the future. This sets up safe environment trainings and requires background checks for those involved in ministry. Now, as with any large organization, instituting policy changes came with real logistical challenges pay these people to procure adequate training. Posters had to be hung. There were some dioceses that did not have networked computer systems. There had to be either a window in the door or the door had to be open. Background investigations of seminarians and clergy. Special classes for the children to learn, say no, run away, and tell someone. This was a massive operation and it was happening all across the Catholic Church in America. And if you ask Kathleen McChesney, Governor Keating, or Jane Myers, they'll all say that it was worth the logistics, that in the end, the Dallas Charter made a very real and positive impact in the life of the church. We know this because rates of abuse have dropped dramatically. And when abuse happens, it has to be dealt with openly and reported to civil authorities. But then, in June of 2018, we learned about allegations against Cardinal Theodore McCarrick. A trust that was not only violated, but was ignored by others who were responsible for paying attention. And these allegations seemed to throw into question years of progress under the Dallas Charter. So Cardinal McCarrick was the Archbishop of Washington, D.C. in 2002 when bishops were meeting. This is Michael O'Loughlin, national correspondent at America Media. And he was by far one of the most high-profile bishops in the United States. And his role was really to serve as the public face of what the bishops were doing to confront the crisis. Because we want to make sure that we handle this and that we are able to say to our people that this is under control and it won't happen again, and we move in that direction. 
And I, I came across an interview that he gave to USA Today back in 2002, in which he kind of said he had some reservations about the proposed zero tolerance approach. He said he was uncomfortable with the idea that someone could make an allegation from 10, 20, 30 years ago, where memories may be faded or changed, and that that person could be removed from ministry. Michael had been working on the Catholic beat in D.C. for several years and knew McCarrick well. He was involved in many of the Catholic organizations that I admired. He would preach occasionally at masses at the cathedral where I went. And he was someone who I thought was a great example of a Catholic engaged in public life, someone who could kind of find common ground between the left and the right, charismatic, funny, joyful even. Uh, he's someone who wielded influence in Rome as well. He founded something called the Papal Foundation in 1988, which raised tens of millions of dollars that went from the United States to Rome. Uh, he influenced who was made bishops in the United States. So at the time, he was seen as a trusted figure, someone who would do the right thing in terms of advocating for victims, someone who would put pressure on Rome to adopt uh, policies that while well, bishops of the United States were championing, uh, Rome expressed some concern about. So he, he really was someone who I think the public and the Catholics in particular trusted to do the right thing. Yeah. So what changed? When did we learn that Cardinal McCarrick should not be trusted? It was a pretty quick fall from grace for Cardinal McCarrick. He is not welcome. We should say that for his sake and out of respect for those whom he harmed. In June of 2018, we learned that Pope Francis removed McCarrick from ministry because of allegations of abuse of a 16-year-old boy dating back to the 1970s. Shortly after that, another allegation of abuse of a minor surfaces. Then in July, we learned kind of the second part of this scandal, which is that as a bishop and archbishop, McCarrick had been accused of abusing seminarians. So we're talking about adults now. Stories uh, emerged that he would invite groups of seminarians to his private beach house on the Jersey Shore and that he would sexually harass and sexually abuse some of these men. The first allegation of abuse of a minor was made in early 2018 and Pope Francis removed him from ministry in June. In July, after the news that he had uh, sexually harassed seminarians emerged, Pope Francis asked Cardinal McCarrick to resign from the College of Cardinals. The Holy See has removed him from the College of Cardinals and does have a process juridically based to address him. In September, the Archdiocese of Washington announces that Cardinal McCarrick has relocated to a religious house in rural Kansas where he's been sentenced to a life of prayer and penance. Also in September, the four dioceses where McCarrick had worked and ministered announced they're conducting their own investigations. By October, Pope Francis orders that the Vatican archives be uh, looked into to see what church officials there knew about McCarrick and his own background. The well-justified wrath and suspicion of the faithful in the United States falls on us as their shepherds. They rightly expect us to do all that we can to rid the church in our country of the shameful residue of Theodore McCarrick's ministry. But what are the consequences for McCarrick? Well, legally, the statute of limitations had run out for McCarrick's abuse of a minor almost 50 years ago. So he can't be tried as a criminal. But the church can still punish him. So in February of 2019, an office in the Vatican that had been investigating the case said, McCarrick should be laicized. And Pope Francis made it official. 
Now, to lay aside as a priest or bishop is to remove them from the clerical state. This means McCarrick is stripped of his title and can't celebrate mass or perform sacraments. And the church is no longer obligated to support him with things like a pension or housing. It is the most severe punishment the church can give. And it shows that in this case, Pope Francis is taking sexual abuse seriously. But laicizing McCarrick, or what some people call defrocking, doesn't solve everything. Even a laicization of McCarrick is not going to put this scandal to rest, because as you say, there are a lot of questions about who knew what when. And we know now, as early as 2000, when a U.S. priest named Boniface Ramsey wrote to the Vatican and said he had heard from seminarians that uh, McCarrick was engaged in inappropriate conduct with adults. Someone at the Vatican got that letter. You have other questions about the settlements that happened in the early 2000s. If these settlements were known to church authorities, why was he allowed to uh, continue in ministry? Why was he allowed to interact with seminarians? Uh, again, this is different from abuse claims against a minor, which in a sort of ironic, crazy way, the Dallas Charter actually worked when it came to McCarrick because as soon as an allegation was made, the church did an investigation, deemed it credible, and he was removed from ministry. So that's actually how we've learned about McCarrick. Exactly. The Dallas Charter worked in this case. It's this other side, this alleged abuse of adults, where it gets much murkier. Because the abuse of adults isn't something that was factored into the Dallas Charter. That's right. I think, and that's something I think people are learning this time around, is that the Dallas Charter is about sexual abuse of minors. It's not about harassment or abuse of adults. I want to pause here for just a minute to make a few things clear. The McCarrick case cuts two ways into the Dallas Charter. The whole reason we found out about McCarrick was that a victim came forward decades after his childhood abuse. The Lay Review Board in New York, which had been a product of the Dallas Charter, found these allegations to be credible and removed McCarrick from ministry. That got the ball rolling for the Vatican to take action. But at the same time, McCarrick's case revealed a major flaw in the Dallas Charter. That is, its failure to respond to the sexual abuse of vulnerable adults. But for many people, the Dallas Charter was flawed or incomplete even before we knew about McCarrick. In terms of bishops accused of mismanaging abuse, critics say that there's not any procedure to hold them to account. While the Charter was focusing on consequences for priests, it did nothing to punish the bishops who enabled the cover-up. So I, I hear a lot about bishops not being held accountable for how they manage the sex abuse crisis. And I think that there's some in the hierarchy who think they can just wait it out, uh, that this was a problem that went on in the 70s and 80s. Uh, we saw abuse kind of peak around this time. And that if we just wait long enough, the bishops who mismanage the abuse will be retired and the church can just move on from there. But I think the whole system tends to be corrupted by what we're learning now. So in some ways, I think there needs to be something akin to a Truth and Reconciliation Commission where everything's just kind of put out there at once, where documents are released, files are opened up, uh, bishops who were active at this time kind of explain why they did what they did. If they recognize now that they maybe mismanaged it, they can explain why they made those choices back then. The kind of truth and reconciliation that Michael is talking about will take years, if it's done right. 
and that will be painful. The church will continue to make headlines as it digs up mistakes of the past. But that is what truth-telling requires of us. And we've learned from the bishops' reforms in 2002 that preventing and responding to future abuse is good. But it's not enough. It took Pennsylvania's civil investigation to get the church to open its archives and share records of past abuse. Do we need another external investigation for bishops? Maybe. No matter what, Michael says taking this kind of inventory of past sin will be complicated. I think something the church has to grapple with now is the mistakes that uh, bishops and other church leaders made in the past. Those people might be some of the same people who have made progress in the last 15, 20 years. And that's something I think is hard for us to understand that poor decisions made 30 years ago doesn't necessarily mean that this particular priest or bishop couldn't have made great decisions the last 5, 10, 15 years. And that's what I mean when I say that uh, this is a systemic problem that uh, people may have inherited issues or they may have been part of a system where they couldn't affect the change they wanted as immediately as they wanted, but they've worked hard to uh, kind of make changes. Catholics have a lot of experience categorizing sin. From an early age, we're taught about venial sin and mortal sin, sins of commission and sins of omission, what we've done and what we've failed to do. Counting all the ways I could sin used to terrify me, but now I wonder if there's some wisdom in this tradition. Because when we look at how bishops dealt with the crisis in the past, we know their sin, but it doesn't all look the same. Some were downright criminal in their cover-up. Others made mistakes based on bad medical recommendations. And then some bishops never dealt directly with abuse, but inherited problems from their predecessors. But Catholics not only have a detailed taxonomy of sin, we also have a long practice of confession, or telling the truth to God and each other. That work began in the Dallas Charter, but it hasn't reached completion. The question is whether we have the strength and perseverance to continue this very public confession. Kathleen McChesney, even after working on this for the past 17 years, refuses to give up hope. People tire of hearing about bad things. That's understandable. But when it comes to these issues, when it comes to youth, when it comes to the way in which people interact with their church and their faith, those issues are just too important to become complacent. And complacent is the enemy of progress. So we would hope that everyone involved in this continues to move forward and do all that they can to make certain that everyone is safe in Catholic ministries. Next time on Deliver Us, we're listening to the survivors. It will be a hard set of interviews to hear, but these stories are important and essential to the project of healing, truth-telling, and reconciliation. And we're not gonna do this alone. We'll be joined by the Reverend Serene Jones, a Disciples of Christ minister and abuse survivor, 
who will teach us how to listen well. The literature on trauma now confirms that giving testimony and bearing witness is the absolute most essential part of the process of healing. Deliver Us is produced by America Media in collaboration with Spoke Studios. I'm Maggie Van Dorn, your host and an executive producer with Eric Sundrup. Our producers are Sarah Esikoff, Rebecca Seidel, and Eloise Blondio, with assistance in concept and story development from Sam Sawyer and Carrie Weber. Promotion and outreach from Amber Smith. Production help from Kieran Freeman and Mary Beth Thoreau. Our sound design is by Rebecca Seidel. Our theme music was composed and produced by Chris McCormick. You can find additional music credits in our show notes. This episode was written by me, Maggie Van Dorn. And lastly, a special thanks to all my former students who helped recreate a scene from their high school theology class. Shout out to Katherine Kem, Erin Lorendi, Christina Huderski, and Athena White. And to Miss Nicole McCabe for getting great audio. If you've been sexually assaulted, you can get confidential support 24-7 through the National Sexual Assault Hotline. The number for the hotline is 800-656-HOPE. That's 800-656-4673. You can also visit www.rain.org. That's www.rain.org. If you are reporting sexual abuse from Catholic clergy or looking for support from the church, you can also contact your diocese victim assistance coordinator. Contact information for each diocese is available at usccb.org forward slash VAC.